Today, I am thrilled to welcome Jennifer Petroglieri to the podcast. Jennifer is an assistant professor of organizational behavior at Inseed and the author of the fantastic book, uh, which I'll link to in the show notes, called Couples That Work. It's a book about how dual career couples, where both people in a couple work, uh, thrive in work and in life. And the book is a fascinating look at the transitions that we tend to go through in our life with our partner. And it just has a wealth of data about these transitions and how we can best deal with them. I got so much out of this one and found our conversation really, really fascinating. And if you work and you're in a relationship with somebody who also works, I think you're going to find this one extraordinarily helpful as well. Regardless of what stage you're in or have experienced so far, which uh, you'll get to know the three of them in the interview. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Jennifer Petroglieri, the author of Couples that work. Jennifer Petroglieri, welcome to Time and Attention. Great to be with you, Chris. Yeah, it's so nice to chat. So I, I want to begin by looking at from a higher up vantage point, the framework that you provide in the book for the three transitions we tend to go through as couples. Uh, so there seem to be three transitions at different stages in our lives. So f- just to set the stage for our, our chat today, from a very high level, what are these transitions and when do we usually go through them as well in our lives? Yeah, so when I was doing my research on working couples, I found, of course, huge diversity between couples Mm. and yet some patterns that span through us all. And these patterns were these three transitions, three really difficult moments that most couples go through at relatively predictable times. And all couples make relatively predictable mistakes in these transitions And the book really talks through the transitions and what we can do to get over them. So the first transition is early on in our couple life. So this, regardless of whether you get together maybe in your 20s early in life, or perhaps you're a second second couple, a second marriage sort of later in life, when we first get together, we're in that honeymoon phase, aren't we? Which feels wonderful and everything's going smoothly. And then something happens and there's something unusually can be a good thing, right? It might be that one of us got gets a great job opportunity, but it's on the other side of the country. Mm. Or maybe we have our first child together, an amazing opportunity. But all of everyone who's faced these know it really it brings up some really difficult choices, right? Yeah. What do we do? Do we does one of us leave our job and follow the other? How do we structure our lives with a new baby around? And really what this first transition is about is it's the first time as a couple we're having to make a difficult choice, a hard choice that will require some compromise, some sacrifice. So this is the first transition and the predictable mistakes people make here, which is interesting on a podcast about productivity, (laughs) is that they really go for the surface level stuff. Who earns the most and therefore we should move for that? Um, you know, how, how much money is there and what should we spend on childcare? Um, you know, how much time is there and how much travel should we do? So we tend to think of these surface issues, which of course are important. <laughs> but the first transition is very often about the question of power in a couple, right? Who gets to choose? Who gets to pick? 
whose career is made priority. And very few couples kind of have that com- the conversation at that level. And so what often happens to couples in the first transition is we make a decision which seems pretty rational. You know, we've thought it through. It's maybe a productive decision. It works financially. But then a few years down the line, resentment starts to build. And the resentment starts to build because, of course, life is not rational. You know, It's yeah. all very well to sort our finances out. But unless we've started to think about how do we prioritize our careers vis-a-vis each other, how do we make sure we both get to follow our desires? We're really just storing up that resentment. So, so that's the first transition. And we can talk more about it in a little bit, sort of how to get through it. Then the sex, and that's really doesn't particularly relate to career stage, but very much relates to couple, you know, couple stage. You know, somewhere usually in the first five or six years of our couple, we we tend to face that transition. The second transition is a little bit more about career stage. And this tends to hit us at mid-career, mid-life, mid-career stage, roughly speaking. And this is a stage, I don't know if you're you're there yet, Chris, but I definitely am, <laughs> where, <laughs> you know, you've had a successful career, it's taken off, you've done rather well. Um, and suddenly you reach this stage where you start to question, you know, is this, is this really what I want? Is yeah. there more to life? And this is a point, um, and of course, we know that COVID during the pandemic, a lot of people accelerated through this transition and really took a step back and, and felt like, I'm not sure my life is quite as I want it. So it's a time of really quite deep questions. You know, are we living in the right place? Is the family structure right? Is this the career I want? Is this the direction I want? And it's a very turbulent time individually as we're facing those questions and a very turbulent time for a couple because of course if your partner starts to question is this the life I want the natural question is well well am I the partner you want you know and how does that impact the relationship and in fact it's not a coincidence that if we look for example at the rate of divorces at this point in our lives career there is quite a big spike and it's a lot of that is to do with these questions coming up so the second transition is really about how do we navigate those questions together and, and re, restructure and reshape our path together in a way that doesn't push us apart, right? So can we regenerate as and renew as a couple? Or if we do it individually, does that really push us apart and onto different paths? So that's the, that's the second transition. So a little bit more existential, if you like, than the first. Yeah. And then the third transition comes later in life. So if we think of that legacy phase of our careers, you know, where perhaps we've risen up the ranks, we've we've been successful. And I think towards the end of our career, sort of 50 plus, we start thinking about, you know, maybe if we've had children, maybe they've left home. For many of us, unfortunately, our parents have passed on. So we're the sort of older generation And those questions of expanding our ambitions really come into play at that point. So what we see at that point in our careers is people tend to shift their focus away from my growth, my my success, my kind of rising up the hierarchy onto a much more broader definition of success, sort of a giving back, a more portfolio career, a sense of wanting to do some community work as well, perhaps. And this is actually a really interesting time for couples because there can be this incredible regeneration and reinvention as a couple. Mm. And this is interestingly a time when many couples start to do things together. 
maybe not necessarily, you know, start a business together or something that big, but it might be doing some voluntary work together. So this is another really interesting transitional time, which speaks to just where we are in our life stage and sort of Mm. facing that very much the second half of our lives and the end of our careers. So just in a little nutshell, there are three transitions. Oh, no, that's that's fantastic. So it's so, I love the way you share these in in the book as well with uh, all all the stories and narratives and and examples from your research. I'm curious, how how common are these stages? Do, you know, 40% of people experience them all? Do 80% of people experience, or, or have you examined that in the research, just how common these are yeah. uh, between us all? So incredibly common mm. is the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think a little bit different for, depending on the first transition, we are all going to go through it, right? Because mm-hmm. we all at some point face a difficult choice. So this one is universal is a big word, but but yeah. pretty much, I mean, of course we face it at different times. Some couples will face this, you know, in the first six months to a year they get together. Other couples, let's may, maybe you get together in college in your early 20s, it may take a little bit longer to face this. But certainly if you're in a couple who's in the honeymoon phase now, it is coming your way. <laughs> it is not, <laughs> there's no hiding from this transition. I think the second transition obviously depends a little bit on when you get together as a couple. You know, some people Mm. get together in later life, so they may have already gone through this as individuals. But again, if you are, you know, I think we we know it's very well documented that sort of our roughly sometime in our 40s is a time of big questioning for us. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I I mean, I I hesitate to say universal, but they're Mm -hmm. very, very common. Another thing I loved from the book is how you described the those traps that that you gave an overview of, and um, for the first stage, the becoming interdependent with somebody else stage, um, you, you describe how focusing too much on economic decision making criteria can be a a big trap, and that's kind of where my mind um, went went to. And you know, combining uh, two lives together, it, it you know, it, it by default, it almost seems to make sense to follow the money, follow the high earner. But you write, quote, the most practical, rational, or financially optimal choice may not be the one that leads you to a joint path on which you both thrive. So what is it that makes us overvalue this economic criteria? And how can we, is it just a matter of being awareness that that's something that we do and that it's not as valuable as we give it credit for? I'm, I'm curious to hear you unpack that a bit. Yeah, it's a great question. And it requires a little bit of nuance because, of course, finances are important for us all. Very few of us have so much money that we just don't need to worry oh, about wouldn't it. That be, uh, it wouldn't great? that be great? Wouldn't that be great? I don't know if it would be great. This is something I say to Arden all the time. Uh, I wish we had old money. You know, wouldn't it be great to have old money? <laughs> I think that comes with a different set of problems, though. <laughs> oh, probably, <laughs> yeah. It yeah. probably does. But yeah, so, but of anyway. course, of course, money is important and it's something we need to consider. However, um, the problem with just focusing on money is it, it creates a short-term bias. So imagine for a mm. second we were a couple and you earn slightly more than me. Well, if we look into the data, our current salary is actually quite a poor predictor of our future salary. So even if we were just oh. to think about money, Who's to say, you know, you earn 5,000 more a year than me now. Who's to say that's going to be true in five years' time? So first of all, it's a very inaccurate decision-making criteria. Hmm. 
Secondly, assuming we have enough to live, most of us are motivated by much more than much more beyond money. Yeah. And we know this from the research on money in the hedonic treadmill, right? That once we earn past a certain money, the money really does not make any difference to how satisfied we are with life. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we're much more motivated by things like community. Do we enjoy our job? Is our job meaningful? Do we have a happy relationship? Are we living somewhere near family or maybe for other people? Are we living a long way away from our family? Perhaps that's what we want. (laughs) And the problem with just focusing, I say that as someone who has a Sicilian mother-in-law, you can understand why. (laughs) So, uh, you know, if if you're someone who, if you're just focusing on the money aspect, The problem is all those other things fade into the background and that's what we make wrong decisions. Now, of course, the financial aspect should be in the mix, but it should be part of the mix as opposed to the only thing we decide on. Mm, Interesting. So for this transition where we go from uh, individuals to one interdependent couple, you describe an idea in the book called uh, couple contracting. So what is that and what what steps can we do to follow that? I found that really interesting. Yeah, so it sounds very formal, but it's and I don't mean to sort of sign something in blood, but it's really a way to to a, a technique to really thought thoughtfully consider what do we really want out of life together. And you know what's really fascinating is we do these kind of exercises all the time for our career, for our lives, and we very rarely do them in our couple. You know, how many times have you been encouraged to sit down and think about what do you want out of your career for the next five years or what would make your career meaningful? And yet we never do it in our Mm -hmm. couple and family life, which when you step back is, is slightly crazy because at the end of the day, this is the foundation of our lives, right? Our family life, our home life, our couple life is what everything else is built on. So the idea of couple contracting is really just an invitation to couples to to sit down and have um, a reflective conversation around, and I always think a five-year time horizon is a really good horizon to consider because it's long enough that you could seriously make a big transition. Let's imagine you fancied living abroad for a while or one of you wanted to retrain or something like that. Five years is is a chunk of time you could realistically do something like that. But it's short enough that you can realistically sort of project yourself forward five years. I always think when people say, you know, project yourself forward 10 years, well, I have no idea what I'm going to be doing in 10 years, you know? Yeah, no. So five years is a good time period to sit down and just think through what would make the next five years worthwhile for us individually mm. and also for us as a couple. What are some of the, the big ticket items that we want to do, maybe some practical things we want to do, but also want to feel what kind of community do we we want to be in? What's the relationship we want to have with our broader family? Um, you know, are there some sort of really fun community things we want to do or projects we want to do together? And layering that side by side against your career ambitions and really looking at it in the round, as opposed to just looking at your career off the side and then thinking of your couple and family as something that has to slot into those plans. And the idea of a contract is just to say, write it down, (laughs) right? You know, have a conversation and and write it down, not not to be an immovable object like the constitution that we can never change, but really just as a little marker that you can come back to. 
So, um, so now we, my husband and I, we have teenage children and actually we do this every New Year's Eve now. It's become a tradition. And we do this with the kids, right? Well, no longer kids, but we all sit down and we talk about the year that's gone past. And then we talk about, you know, what is important for us all the next year, the next couple of years. And, um, you know, we write it all down. And now we have this stack of papers from the last sort of 10 years. And it's lovely to look back at it mm. and see how our dreams have evolved and, and really think about how can we support each other in getting what we want individually, but also together. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Love it. So transition to where we... Uh, calibrate to to what we want. One thought, and this is probably a vast oversimplification, but I'm wondering what what the difference is mostly. Um, One thought I kept having reading about this second uh, transition in the book is how it sounds kind of like a a midlife or a quarter-life crisis. Um, And I'm sure that's not an accurate depiction of what the second phase is life, but, but, but I'm curious what the similarities are between this stage where we uh, kind of question things and uh, and a quarter life or a, a midlife crisis, if that's something you've studied. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose there's similarities. I think um, I think a lot of people don't understand what was originally meant by the term crisis. So we hear crisis and we think bad, <laughs> okay? <Yeah. laughs> but actually, when um, when people first introduced the term midlife crisis, it was it was actually called a midlife developmental crisis, and we dropped the developmental somehow. Oh, and interesting! There this, and there's this idea that you know to really shift paths, you need a moment of developmental crisis where you really step back and feel something's not right here, and that is the impetus to change. Right? If everything felt fine all the time. We would never change and we'd never develop and we'd never grow, right? We'd be in our comfort zone. Yeah. So this original idea of crisis was really as, okay, it may feel uncomfortable at the time, but actually we need crises, right? We need these developmental crises if we are to grow and continue growing as adults, which one would hope we would do. Um, mm-hmm. And so, you know, when I talk about this, this questioning of sort of where do we want to, where do we want to go and, and who do we want to be and who do we want to become? It's really in this sense for developmental crisis. So it's less about, you know, having an affair and buying a sports car or whatever we associate yeah. with the midlife crisis, but more this, this real developmental meaning of a crisis, which is when we get to a moment where we feel a little bit stuck, right? And a little bit like, ah, oh, something's not right here. But that's accompanied with a pull. So there's a push of the feeling that I'm not quite happy, something's not right, I'm missing something. But it's accompanied by the important piece, which is the pull, which is I want more, I want something different, I want to change. And I think that's the piece, you know, we really need to focus on in our couples because I think what we tend to do, which comes from a very good place, is when we feel our partner is in some kind of distress, our immediate reaction is try to reduce that distress. Don't worry, it will be okay. Uh, you know, we'll fix it. As opposed to thinking about that as a developmental space, as a, you know, a trampoline to launch, jump onto a better space. And I think this is a time in our couples where we really need to think about what is the best way to support each other. Mm-hmm. So we sometimes think of a supportive relationship as in, you know, and this is a very British thing, you know, sort of cup of tea and a cuddle, you know, don't worry, it'll be okay, let me make you a cup of tea, (laughs) sort of thing. But at this stage, what we really need is this sort of helpful kick in the butt, you know, the like, 
okay, I get you're feeling like that. Well, what could we do about it? What are the other options? What, what might be able to change? And what I found very strongly in my research is the couples who could really think about these de- crises as developmental and think about them from the, okay, what can we do differently in, as opposed to, oh my goodness, this is terrible. How do we make ourselves feel better? Yeah. Um, were the couples who really thrived in this stage and were really able to reinvent themselves and bounce off each other and help each other. Because I think when you're in this stage of questioning, it can feel very lonely, yeah. right? You know, is there something wrong with me? I am, you know, my life seems to be okay, but I, I'm feeling restless, right? That There must be something wrong with me. And I think if we can talk it through with our partners, we often find they're feeling the same, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and can we, rather than feeling, oh, I shouldn't tell anyone, this is embarrassing, the couples who can really try and work this through together can benefit hugely at this stage. One of my favorite ideas encountering the book is uh, this idea of your partner being a secure base yeah. that you can kind of return home to. I think it was in this section of the book that you chatted about that. Um, what, what have you found uh, about that in your research, The uh, having a secure base to come back to? Or just what are your thoughts on that in general, how we can develop one and, and what that is? Yeah, so essentially what a secure base means psychologically is is somewhere that you feel safe, someone you feel safe with, but someone who encourages you to go out and explore and develop, which is a little bit different from what we think of as the classic relationship, which is holding our partner close. Mm. So I think especially sometimes when we're a little bit anxious, our tendency is to pull our partners close and set to kind of hold on. But this is very different. This is a very supportive relationship, but one that sort of almost pushes our partner, not away, but encourages them to go out and explore different avenues, different options with the idea of returning. And perhaps the the, the easiest way to think about this is a little bit, if you, if you have children and you know anything about children, um, you know, we know that when our children are in a great space psychologically, let's say we're in the playground, mm-hmm. they will wander away from us, right? They won't stay close to us. They'll wander away. And then, of course, if something happens bad, they'll come running back for a cuddle and then they'll be off again. Yeah. And I mean, it's a little bit like that, obviously, a very different level for adults. Um and I they think need a cuddle and a tea. They need a cuddle yeah. and a tea or perhaps yeah. a glass of wine if it's yeah. very bad. <laughs> but um, if we think about how, well, how do we do that as a couple, it's really about three things. One is about sort of tolerating our partner's anxiety rather than trying to shut it down mm. and enabling them the space to talk and to vent. It sounds obvious, but if you think about last conversation you had with your partner. I mean, how often do we shut our partners down? You know, I'm feeling really bad today. Oh, I'm sure it'd be better tomorrow. We do it all the time. As opposed to just giving them one minute where we say nothing and just let them talk it out. So that's one, that's one piece of it. Can you just give your partner, and we're not talking hours on end, just two Mm -hmm. or three minutes at a time where you don't interrupt you just give them the space to talk it out and talk through their distress. Yeah. That's the first really important piece. The second really important piece is this encouragement piece. Rather than saying, it'll be fine, this encouragement to, okay, what, what might you do about that? How might that be different? 
um, is there something, is there someone else you can talk to? Is there a different avenue can, you can explore? So this real kind of gentle push for the person to fix it on their own. And this leads to the third thing, which of course is very important in couples, is that we are not our partner's parents. So we need to be careful not to get into the interference space, right? You know, did you apply for that job? Did you talk to that person? Did you go and, you know, that's not helpful. So it's kind of, can we be there to be a sounding board, a supportive person and a push without becoming too involved in what actually happens? And they're the three kind of the secret sources of creating this, this secure base for our partner. And this really does predict how well couples go through the second transition. And what's interesting about this is it both predicts um, how how healthy our relationship is in our couple, but it also predicts how well we both do in our careers, which is fascinating, right? Because what we see when we look at the research, and I did a big piece of research with a colleague, Atelier Abodaro, on this, and we found that couples which both had these secure bases for each other, their careers were much more successful individually, right? Wow. Than couples wow. who didn't have this. So we see this big effect of what is happening in the relationship on people's individual careers. Now, what this tells mm. us is you can't separate these worlds. <laughs> you know, you cannot leave your family behind when you go into work. And vice, of course, we see the opposite effects as well. You know, we see positive spillover in both directions and negative spillover in both directions. And so even people who had, you know, really great mentors at work or a great support network at work, this the, the support we get from our partners, even if they know nothing about our job and they're not experts in our area, is really, really critical for our long-term career success. Really, really interesting. The, uh, the book is Couples That Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and work. I highly recommend that uh, if you're listening, pick up a copy. Wherever books are sold, um, I'm sure you can tell already. It's fascinating. It's practical. It's tactical. So, okay, we've we've made it through the first two transitions. We've we've asked uh, how can we make this work. We've asked what do we really want, and then we ask where are we now in the final transition. And one idea that I, I wanted to share, because I think it's just fascinating, regardless uh, of our stage in, in life that, that you share in, in the book, is um, the difference between playing with our identities and working on our identities. And I'm wondering if you could break this idea down for listeners and what uh, difference these two approaches can make with finding out who we wish to become. Yeah, so I think very early in our careers, um, we're quite influenced by other people, right, which is very natural and there's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, maybe we go to university or to college and there's, you know, everyone's going into tech companies this year or whatever. And we we follow the crowd and we really work hard to get to a destination we're looking for. You know, I want to be you know, a tech product designer or something and I work hard towards that. And, you know, that serves us pretty well in the first half of life, honestly. But as we get a bit more mature and we start to think about, okay, what what is it that I really want? This this modus operandum doesn't work so well, right? Because it's not as clear that there's an X we're moving towards. In fact, what that stage of development requires us is that we start to think, okay, well, X may be the thing, 
but maybe there's a Y and a Z as well, or maybe there's a kind of F all the way over there. Yeah. And so the idea of play as opposed to work is really being open to the possibilities and playing with different paths as opposed to doggedly working towards one path that we're very fixed on. And again, there's nothing wrong with that work aspect. It's just that later on in our careers, it just doesn't fit that well because we've been on this path and what we want to do now is explore. And to explore, we really need to get in this play mode. So oftentimes, as we get further in our career, that might look like different things. It might look like doing a few courses on the side in different areas. It might look like taking a sabbatical and trying a different thing. It might look like broadening our network, right, rather than deepening it. So broadening it to people in different industries, in different areas, even areas that look really different from our own, just to dabble and test and play. And sometimes this can lead to a huge career transition. But more often than not, it leads to us doing our careers in a different way, Mm. if that makes sense. So it leads to a difference in just how we approach and how we tackle things as opposed to a huge, huge career shift. But it's a time which is hugely developmental for us because, um, in fact, we can we can learn this from innovation research. If we look at innovation research, all big innovations, you know, from the dawn of time have occurred from people dabbling in areas yeah. really outside of theirs. Yeah. And the same is true for us as individuals, where we really get that big step in development is where we play with different ideas and then somehow recombine them which makes us look at the world in a different way and just act in a different way and approach things in a different way. So this is just a great way to approach our careers and life in the second half of our career. Love it. Um, One one quote that I love from the book that I just have to read verbatim and it leads to the final question that I have for you. Um, The quote is, the dilemma dual career couples face today is that we want to thrive in both love and work, yet one of those endeavors, work, is overvalued by the external world, and the other, love, is immensely powerful, yet often undervalued by that world. So final question for you is how do we account for love in all of this? You know, you mentioned uh, couple contracting, but you know, the reason, well, the reason I, I love being in a couple is the love, it is, it is, <laughs> is uh, spending time together, enjoying the journey and, uh, and the love along the way. So, uh, you know, you mentioned couple contracting and that's, uh, you know, an awesome strategy for it. I'm curious if there's any other guidance you'd give for um, this uh, almost, uh, it's like a full uh, approach to thinking about the uh, place our, our, our career deserves to have in our life. Yeah. So I would start by challenging your question, <laughs> which, okay, is, okay. which is, you know, that's a very work way of looking at how do we account for love? What, why should we account for love? <laughs> you know, it's not, it's, not a, it's not money that we put in the bank. I, I mean, I think, I think part of this is, um, is trying not too much to apply our working philosophies to love because that's when it becomes very instrumental. And, and really, you know, it is something very different and something incredibly nourishing. And can we value it just for that? I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, of course, we all know this, you know, no one on their deathbed says, I wish I'd worked more. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we know that. But, but it's worth reminding ourselves that, right? Um, because when people say, it, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that. Really? Do you really know that? Like, have you really sunk, has that really sunk into your bones? Because I think for most of us, it, have, it hasn't. And I think for most of us, in fact, I think for most people, it often takes a crisis. And this time I'm talking a real crisis, a health crisis or a marital crisis or a career crisis for us to really think, oh, hang on a minute. That is right. You know, at the end of the day, when I measure my life, I am not going to measure what level I got to in an organization. I'm not going to measure how much is in my bank account. It's going to be measured by my relationships, by my couple, but also my relationship with my community, with my wider family. Um, And I think we need to build in more mechanisms in our life to just keep that top of mind. Now, of course, our careers are important, right? And that's a good thing. But can we at least try and place equal emphasis? And that stems from super basic things around everyday decisions you make. How do you prioritize your time? You know, what do you drop everything for? Do you drop everything for the work trip? Or do you drop everything for the birthday party or the surprise weekend away? So it's right from those micro decisions we make through to those more consequential decisions. You know, what town are we going to live in? How do we decide? How do we make these big decisions? How do we place weighting on things? Through to, you know, um, how do the sort of fabric of our relationship with our partners? What do we share? What do we keep out of those conversations? Can we think of life holistically as opposed to, well, that's work, so I'm not going to talk to you about that. And this is my relationship, so I'm not going to bring it into work. And what we find time and time again is people who can sort of treat things in a more holistic way rather than trying to package them off and separate them in the long term tend to thrive more. The book, Once More, Couples That Work, How Dual Career Couples Can Thrive in Love and Work. Forget about dual career couples. If, if you're in a couple or you want, want to be, I, I, I highly recommend the book. It's fascinating. It's practical. It's tactical. Uh, Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing these ideas with, with everybody. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.